0: we are working our way through Ephesians. And we're kicking off Ephesians chapter 6, which is about parenting and slavery. So I'm going to knock those simple topics over in 40 minutes. <laughs> Easy. But full disclosure. Um, I'm, I don't have all the answers for how to produce happy, obedient children into adulthood. And I'm not going to provide a strong biblical defense for slavery. So um, if that's what you're after, I'll give you a chance to, <laughs> to leave. Um, so I, before, I've been coming to cows for 18 years now, 17 years. And before that, I'd never been to a church that taught verse, verse by verse through the Bible. And um, it's obviously a big deal at Calves. And I didn't understand the fuss for, for a while, but I've really grown to love it. Um, you get the full story of the Bible. Um, it also means you've got to work out the difficult bits. <laughs> And you don't get to skip over passages on slavery. So here we are. So um, Ephesians, we, the, we've kind of framed this up as um, sit, walk, stand as we work through Ephesians. Sitting is all about knowing our identity in Christ and all the awesome promises that come from that. Walk, is, and that's where we're at now, putting that identity into actions and like Dave Dean spoke about it's about you know getting the dust on our feet of our identity and then next week we'll move into stand so that's about putting on the armor of God and standing in that identity come what may so we're in the middle of this section that started out a couple of weeks ago um, halfway through chapter 5 on submission a great topic in today's world and what does that look like what does how's how do we work out um, the gospel in our relationships whether it's in marriage whether it's in the family or whether it's in employment so wives are told to submit kids are told to obey slaves and servants are told to obey there's this theme of submitting to one another but that's done in the context of first submitting to god and doing it as if we're submitting to God. So in verse chapter uh, sorry, chapter five twenty one, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So last week, Tony talked about, he got the easy one, got marriage. Um, He kind of walked us through how there's this great call throughout Scripture um, for Christians to strive for unity and how that's super important in marriage. And if we want to have the correct understanding of how submission works in our relationships, we need to have a spirit-filled life and the fear of God in us. He talked about how a Christian submission takes teamwork. You need to be content when someone else is going to succeed, and that we to, as, as I just said, we're to submit in the fear of God, not in the fear of man. And if you've got that view of submission, then it becomes a joy rather than a burden. So that's the, you know, the biblical ideal. So there's also this kind of. The transformation of what the gospel does to our relationships and paul doesn't he doesn't throw out relationships completely but he, he totally transforms them he talks about elsewhere that there's no longer male female slave or free Jew or Gentile. And that's in, the, in, the, in terms of our position in Christ, but he still talks specifically about the roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and masters. And sometimes those sorts of things can be hard to, um, to read with a, a 21st century perspective. Um, in some ways, the Christian view of human worth has kind of moved towards, or oh, sorry, the secular humanist view has moved towards a biblical view. But that wasn't the case when Paul was writing Ephesians. Men had ultimate authority in, in the home. He could do whatever he wanted. Babies were were often, newborn babies were often left in the street to exposure, is what they called it, or just left to die if the parents didn't want them, which was often the case if it was a girl. And the master-slave, the master-slave dynamic was very different to the, the way the biblical order was set up in the Old Testament. And so the, the Bible message that Paul gives is very different to that. We are all equal in value. Wives are to be loved like ourselves as a, as a husband. Children have value and should be cared for in the context of a nurturing home. And we are all the same as sinners at the foot of the cross. And at that time, that that worldview was just kind of revolutionary. So I'm going to read the read the passage and then um, pray, and we'll get stuck into it. So Ephesians chapter six, verses one to nine. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may turn out well for you and that you may live long on the earth fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the lord slaves be obedient to those who are your masters in the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to christ not by way of eye service as people pleases but as slaves of christ doing the will of god from the heart with good will render service as to the lord and not to people knowing that whatever good things each one does he will receive back from the lord whether slave or free and masters do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we get to come together and um, have fellowship together and sing songs together and open your word and lo- learn more about your truth. I pray that you will quieten our hearts. For this time lord um thank you that you're here working amongst us lord and we just pray that your will be done through this service in jesus name amen all so parenting absolute minefield and i don't have all the answers I heard a guy say the other day, perfection is for things like modern architecture and graphic design. It's not for parenting. Um, but um, the fear of God is the beginning of all understanding, so let's go to the Bible to work out what we um, what we should about parenting. And I've got to say, I've really enjoyed talking to the kids about this, and it's a pity they're not here, um, talking about this passage to them through the week, just, you know, Children, obey your parents, for it is right. There ended the lesson. So what? Children, obey your parents. Why? For it is right. It's so simple. Kids like simple. Then it says, Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So Paul makes two things clear. Right off the bat, parents have authority over children. And children are to obey their parents. It sounds obvious, but sadly is not so. Whether it's a lack of authority or whether it's an unbalanced authority, Paul is really clear here. Parents, you have the God-given authority in your homes. Now, there's no step-by-step rule book for this, sadly. Um, This is how that authority should be worked out in that situation and this is how it should look like in that. Every family is different, every child is different. And in some things that distinction is kind of pretty easy to make. Like if you're choosing the family movie for pizza and movie night, that's, you know, that's pretty easy to make. But if, if it's something like, how do you choose what's the right school for my child? And how does the parents and the children work together in that decision? That's, that's less so. We need godly wisdom as parents to work out what that looks like um, in each family and for each child. And we're to do this in the Lord. We're to honour God when we do this. But that in itself brings up an issue, doesn't it? If, particularly if there's conflict. So, what if mum and dad are telling me something that doesn't line up with what I'm reading in the Bible? Are there limits? To this obedience what what happens with honoring God conflicts with what I think I should obey so clearly the answer is yes there are limits to our um, to our obedience Paul says very clearly in Acts chapter 5 we must obey God rather than men so my individual responsibility to obey God um, Jesus supersedes any other earthly authority, whether it's a teacher, a governor, a parent. Put it another way, even as a parent or an elder or a government official, I can't le- legitimately, um, as a Christian, instruct my child to disobey God God puts this really clearly as well. Ezekiel 20, I said to your, their children in the wilderness, don't walk in the statutes of their, your fathers. Neither observe their observe ordinances nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am Yahweh your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And then there's that um, there's, there's that thing that Jesus says, um, about hating your father and your mother. Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother, sorry, father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That one, that one seems like a tough one, but the word hate, if anyone was here for when John was, um, I think it was you, John, in Malachi, So I'd I'd never heard this before and it made things. It it was just so good. Um, So think about going into a shoe shop. You've got to buy a pair of shoes and um, you've got two pairs of shoes in front of you and you choose the one on the right and not the one on the left. That's kind of the terminology here for loving and hating. It's choosing one thing over another. It's not what we commonly think of as loving and hating. So it's essentially saying that you love them less when you say hate in that context. So Jesus here is saying you are to choose him over your mother or wife or children when it's when it's required. You are to, you are to obey Jesus over them. And um, we we just went through Genesis twenty seven at Bible study the other week, and there was a, a cool example of like that question of um, when do you stop honoring your parents so Isaac is about to die Um, he tells his favorite servant Esau to go out catch some game bring it back cook it up for him because that's what he loves most and Isaac will give his blessing to Esau Isaac's wife Rebecca overhears this but wants the blessing to go to Jacob her favorite. Now, and this is what it says in Genesis chapter 27. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to him, spoke to his son Esau. So, when Esau went out into the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me the game and prepare me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. And so then Rebekah tells, um, Jake to go off and, and trick, um, trick his, his father and so we as parents are in a position of authority in our family and we need to use that wisely we don't want to make our kids struggle with that tension of choosing You know, do we honour our parents or do we honour God, we should be aligned here then, um, then Paul goes on to Um, So, yep, we're to obey because it is right. Um, I think that's my favourite line in the Bible this week. Um, And then he goes on to say, talk about a promise in that. So, you honour your father and mother that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So, there's a blessing in obedience. No surprise there. It says, it will go well with you that you may live long in the land. What, What does that mean? Does it mean if we obey our parents we'll have worldly success, wealth? What blessings should we promise our children with obedience? Like we know if we look at the Bible, we look at Job. We look at the martyrs. Obviously obedience doesn't necessarily result in a long and prosperous life for all good people. It's clearly not an individual physical thing. I think part of it is practical, um, if you obey your parents, and your parents are good people, you will learn the wisdom of how to navigate through this fallen world. If you don't learn to, uh, um, to obey your parents, and you can continue to habitually disobey. You won't necessarily learn the necessity of hard work, the prudence of how to not to be taken advantage of, how to hold down a job. You, you won't be able to hold down a job I don't know who would hire you. You're likely to run into pol- trouble with the police. Things will not go well with you. Um, but there's more. So when the Israelites heard this when, um, in, in the time of Exodus, going well and living long in the land was all about the land, the promised land of Israel. But our, this side of the cross, our spiritual blessings... Are different. So we jump back to um, Ephesians chapter 2. Our blessings are that He, God, He chose us. He's adopted us as sons. We're His actual children. He's redeemed us through His blood. He's forgiven us our sins. We have mercy. We've, entained, we've obtained an inheritance. We have hope. We have salvation. We have His promised Holy Spirit. We have a guarantee of our eternal inheritance with our Heavenly Father. So there is a, bless, a great blessing in obedience in the context of the family. Children obeying their parents in the Lord. Then, then Paul kind of zooms the focus in a little bit and he talks to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So in first century Roman times, when the Ephesians were reading this, so the family was presided over a father who had ultimate authority, could do whatever he pleased. They called it um, patria potestas. Sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Um, it meant the father's power. So if you were a Roman citizen, a man, a father in, as, as a Roman citizen, you were opera, absolute property rights over your family. By law, your your children and your wife were seen as your personal chattel and you could do with them as you wished. Um, a father could design his children. He could sell them into slavery. He could even kill them if he wished. But what does Paul call out fathers here. Is he saying that mothers don't have a role to play in um, instruction and in discipline? Clearly not. Proverbs 1 verses 8 to 9 says, Hear my son your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. It doesn't say fathers instruct, mothers you've got the nappies. It doesn't say fathers You've got the career, mothers, you're in charge of bringing up the kids. And it doesn't say fathers and mothers, you've both got busy careers, so you can hand over responsibility to a caregiver. It says fathers instruct and mothers teach. It's a shared responsibility and it's their primary responsibility. But here Paul Paul calls out dads and I two potential reasons. I think it's because fathers have a headship role in the family, so they have a primary responsibility in terms of setting instruction and discipline. But maybe it was that fathers were the ones that needed more excitation in this area than mothers. And I think there's a call-out here for us fathers not to be absent or to be passive or, or to delegate that responsibility. I know a lot of us probably head off to work on Monday morning and mums get a lot more time with the kids and um, and so maybe some of us can think that, well the mums are gonna set the regime for discipline and instruction. But we, as fathers, we have a responsibility in that too. So parents, it's on you. It's on you to do the instruction and the disciplining. You might have help at Kids Church. You might have help at Youth Group. You might be sending your kids to a Christian school and be getting great help there, but the buck stops with you. You can't delegate this one. But there's also a sense that it's not just on the parents. So once your kids have developed their own faith, how do you keep them there? That's what we want, right? So, Barna, it's a, a Christian survey company in the US, came out with this, um, they did this survey on spirituality and millennials, and one of the interesting findings out of it was one of the, th- one of the key things that makes the child continue to follow Jesus into, adult, into adulthood, it's real relationships with other adults, intergenerational relationships. So seven out of 10 millennials who dropped out of church didn't have a close friendship with an adult. And nine out of 10 never had a mentor at church. So how do we get our kids hooked up with adults to disciple our kids, to mentor our kids, to have Christian uncles and aunties in the church? I just love that um, my girls have started calling Tony, Uncle Tony. (laughs) And I love it when my boys get to spend quality time and build relationships with my Christian mates because that is priceless. We're all wired differently, and we kind of we can see God differently as well. Um, and it's really valuable to have a, a number of people in our kids' lives helping them along that journey. So, yes, parents, we have primary responsibility for our kids, but it takes a takes a community to disciple them. So, fathers, do not provoke your child to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke them to anger. Paul's telling dads to exercise restraint. And he writes something very similar to the, in his letter to the Colossians, but instead of saying to anger, he says, unless they become discouraged. We're not to kind of dishearten our kids. We're not to shame them, which... I Hate to say can happen in that parent child relationship. Paul says to bring them up, and the word there is the same is it, it, another way of saying that is to nourish them. That's the same word that's used that's kind of translated nourish in chapter five. So we're to nourish them with discipline and instruction, and that really helps me. Like it's you know. Thinking of that discipline and um, instruction as nourishment for my kids. Um, I like that word picture. So in discipline and instruction, we don't want our kids just to know a way to a good life. We want them to know the way, the truth, um, the life. We want them to know Jesus. So how do we make that happen in the family context? For me, it's, it's funny, Mick um, told a, 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 um, talked about his upbringing at church camp last week and how, and I've kind of got a similar family story to Mick. My dad was a minister, but we didn't really do much in the way of devotions or praying together as a family, but we did it once. Um, for about two weeks when I was about 14 dad sat us all down in the lounge room um, before we went to school and we had to recite Psalm 1 over and over again (laughs) it was very weird Um, because it was new like we hadn't done it before Um, I don't know if he got nailed his technique either but anyway but I still remember that passage you know and so we don't need to be youth group leaders or whatever we've just got to do it we just got to be faithful in it. Um, And it's going to look different for for each family. Like for us, we've started doing it over dinner. And sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's very short. But, you know, God's at work. So if you're not doing it, it's never too late to start. Like they say, um, when planting a tree, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the second best time to plan it is today. So if this is something new, have a chat to, um, to your husband or your wife about it tonight. See how you might be able to fit that into your, your um, family routines. So how do we go about instruction? How do we go about disciplining? What does that look like? You can look at the way um, Paul does it in his letters. And there's a real warmth to the way Paul speaks um, to the people he's writing to. In Corinthians he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And to the Thessalonians he said, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So even when there's correction, even when there's warning, there's a warmth to it. And maybe that's one of the reasons that Paul focuses on dads in this section. Maybe we're the ones that need a bit of warming up in the home. And I'm pretty sure that's the case in my house. Or, well it's not or, and we can look at the way our Heavenly Father does it. So in Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Don't provoke your children to anger. Know their frame. Know they are dust. Know them. Know their weaknesses. Know their limits. Know their delights. Be compassionate. Don't provoke them. Don't shame them. Think of it like, think think of um, correction like a splinter. So when your child comes to you with a splinter, You don't yank it out. You don't, hopefully, yell at them. You pull it out with gentleness and patience, because what happens if you're off? Like, they pull away. It doesn't work. They need to trust you in that. It takes trust to let someone poke around in a tender wound. And is it any different when you're correcting a child? We should bring that same gentleness to our parenting. If I had someone digging around in the sinful places of my heart, I'd want it to be gentle. And like all things in our Christian walk, we need humility, a humble perspective to um, give us the foundation for loving correction. And then there's the passage in Matthew where Jesus talks about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. It's the birds of the air they neither reap but they, their father feeds them The people aren't anxious about clothing because they know that he will um, he will clothe them They're not anxious about what they should eat, what they should drink, what they should wear It's this picture of a father who provides, who values, who knows what they need. I think that's a part of parenthood is that um, it's so much easier to have that relationship where we can provide discipline and instruction if we know them, if we know their frame, if we know what their delights are, if we know what their limits are if we provide for them, if we put them at peace, because we know what they need. All right, how are we tracking? That's that's parenting 101. Now we're gonna move on to slavery. So, um, talking about slavery in Christian circles can be a bit intellectual, and we're fortunate In a place like newcastle that maybe most of us haven't really been exposed to it i'm fortunate that i haven't but i just wanted to say up front that it's it's certainly not an intellectual issue it's it's slavery is a thing that you know tears families apart it's ruined lives it's ruined families for generations and it's not just a an issue that's been resigned to the history book sadly so we know there's been um, abolition and you know, good, good work done, um, but there's still abhorrent practices at work today. And whether it's sex trafficking or whether it's slavery in, in other ways, there's, it's still at place. So I just wanna flag that we, sh- we I don't wanna say this is like an intellectual exercise where I'm gonna win the argument on slavery. Um, this is, this is um, this complex. So, I also don't want to um, walk through this passage if people are kind of stuck on on some issues. Like, I want to maybe get the elephant, um, talk about the elephant in the room. So, like, why isn't slavery outright condemned in the church in in Paul's letters? Maybe people have heard heard people Christians using the Bible to support captive slavery. There's some pretty rough passages in the Bible. Um, in Genesis, slave girls, servant girls, given to their masters to have a baby. How can a book that claims to be a great moral authority seemingly condone slavery, not even condemn it in the church? Like, they're, they're tough questions. and And if you haven't had those questions, maybe some of your friends are asking them. I think some people, and it would make it a lot easier, some people just want that 11th commandment. Thou shalt not keep slaves. Or they just want Paul to come out and say, don't keep slaves. I actually think Paul does that without using those words. Like, if you put together what Paul says, I don't think you can get any other conclusion. But anyway, we'll see how we go. So, Yeah, before we jump into the passage, let's just talk about slavery more general in the Bible. So firstly, regulation, regulating something doesn't mean you approve of it. And the best example of that is divorce. So there's rules about divorce in the Bible. What does God say in, or what does Malachi say? God hates divorce, but it's regulated. It's not approved. And there's that passage in in Matthew 19 where that's explained, and and Jesus responds to the questions of, so why then did Moses command them to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed for divo- to, allowed you to divorce your wives. So there are um, there are things in the Bible that are there because of the hardness of our hearts. It acknowledges the reality of 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 sin, and. We kind of do that in a way like the elders have been looking at constitutions and codes of conduct and all that sort of stuff, and in a way you're thinking about all the things that could go wrong it's not what you want but you, you need to um, you deal with what might what might come up um, secondly, what what we know of so I think what Um, slavery in the Old Testament the, the biblical laws around slavery is very different to what we think of as slavery today and what we think of as slavery today is totally against what God is about it's often racist people were largely enslaved because of their race and that with an attitude of kind of superiority of one race over another it's often fueled by kidnapping it, um, it didn't dignify people, slaves had minimal rights, degrading, it, in, it, it often involved things like rape and beating and things like that. And all through the Bible, it condemns all of those elements of slavery that made it abhorrent. The kidnapping, the forced elements, the violence, the rape, all those things are called out. Not, Not possibly in the specific context of slavery, but over and above everything, whether it's a master-slave relationship or whether it's you and your brother. So we jump back into the first century in Ephesus. We're not in a nation-state of Israel where you can make rules for the nation. We're in um, the Roman Empire. So Paul can't set rules. And so slaves, what were slaves like? It was very different to the Old Testament laws around slavery. It's probably pretty much for some slaves in the Roman world like slavery as we know it today. Pretty horrid. Um, they had no freedom, no rights, no ownership, no legal recourse, no citizenship. And there are, there is different views um, around what's a slave and what's a servant. And it's, it's actually, I don't know, you need a PhD to work out when's the right time to use the, the word slave and bondservant and servant and which one's which. Um, to be honest, I don't think it matters for this passage. I think you can look at this passage and, and refer to it as servant in more a kind of a long-term um, employment sense or you could look at it in the worst possible sense as a, like what we think of as a modern-day slave. Happy to talk about that. <clears throat> um, and I might drag Dave Dean in if that conversation goes that way. Um, but what we see here in Ephesians is that slaves are being saved and masters are being slaved and they're coming to church together. And it's awesome, sitting side by side at church. And we've actually got, as I'm sure you'll know, a real-life example of Paul writing a personal letter to a slave owner, Philemon. And I always thought it was Philemon, but Beck tells me it was, it's Philemon. And Philemon is like a, an American. What, do people say Philemon or Philemon? Oh, jeez. Anyway, Philemon. How, how do you say it, Sherwin? <laughs> um, okay. So, Book of Philemon, Paul. So, um, There's a, a slave, Onesimus. He's run away from his master, Philemon, to mix it up. Onesimus gets saved by Paul. And Paul... Sends him back, or he's sending him back to Philemon, who's, um, who's also a Christian. Philemon loves the Lord. Everyone loves the Lord. Paul, Anisimus, Philemon, they're all Christians. And Paul asked Philemon to treat him more than a slave. He, he asked him to treat him like a beloved brother. And so we don't see Paul breaking down. Like the, the laws and the regulations around slavery, Paul just speaks to the heart. He speaks to the heart of the issue. But by doing that, I think he kind of like explodes slavery. Like how can you what does it look like if Philemon does what Paul asks him to do? It's likely going to look like Philemon freeing him or keeping him on in a kind of an arrangement that's more like an employment contract that we have today. You, You certainly can't see how Philemon could keep him in an unjust or cruel or captive way if he was to do what Paul asked him to do. So the New Testament, it kind of transforms human relationships in such a way that The categories of master and slave are still used, but they're not really recognised or recognisable as slavery in the traditional sense. So that's the context. Now now we'll jump into the text. Um, Verse 5. Slaves, obey your masters according to the flesh. According to the flesh. So at the time, the, the slave master had complete control over the slave. So Paul's calling out that our, the slaves' earthly masters are just that, just their earthly masters, and that both um, a Christian slave and a Christian master now have a new master, a new Lord. And that's a profound change in their relationship. So slaves now relate to their master only as their earthly master. And that's to obey with fear and trembling as you obey Christ, not to please people but slaves of Christ. So, so what, does, what does that mean that we're slaves of Christ? So 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price." And so use that language of slaves being bought. Jesus has bought us. He has bought our salvation. And in that way, we're a slave to him. But as Christians, aren't we free? Galatians 5, you are called to freedom, brothers. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Through love, serve one another. And in 1 Peter be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. So God has set us free. We're free in Christ. We are to live as people who are free. We're free of the um, human institutions of emperors and governors. But for God's sake, and within this freedom, we are sent back into the world to submit to these human institutions like emperors and governors and teachers and parents. We are to live as slaves of god he's our one and only absolute master so as i said at the start one of the responses people kind of can have to slavery in the bible is like why didn't why was the paul more forthright about things like slavery um, in his letter to the corinthians Paul says something interesting about remaining in the condition that we're in. For Paul, this was an, a, a, an issue of the heart, our sin. It wasn't so much an issue of the earthly state or political upheaval. So 1 Corinthians. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. And then to jump down to 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. <laughs> uh. So how are we to, So how are we to obey? We um, are to obey our earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as to Christ, doing the good will of God from the heart. So yes, we need to obey them, but it's from the heart. Paul talks, uses these languages, heart, the soul, the good will. Paul is interested in the inner life, not the outward structures. yes, we will obey because we need to um, in these earthly relationships. We need to do what the police say. We need to do what our teacher says. But we do more than that. We do it from the heart. And not by way of eye service. Not as people pleases. It's that external way of doing things. that talks of hypocrisy, which is probably the thing Jesus spoke about more than anything else. Paul is saying... Paul is more interested in the inside of the cup, not the outside of the cup being clean. But that bit about people pleasers made me think kind of more broadly than the master-slave relationship. And I think sometimes we in the church have a bit of an issue with being people pleasers. Whether it's putting on a smile, being nice, being safe... I like the way um, C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So Susan, she's about 12, she's talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan. So he's the, he's the lion. He represents Christ for anyone that doesn't actually know the story. So this is their conversation. Mr. Beaver speaking. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I I feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that. I think I just wanted to read it out of church. <laughs> but I think there's something in that for us, you know? Don't be people pleasers. Don't put on the smiling face. Don't just be nice. We're to be good. Anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. So what Paul, I think, is saying there um, in, in that kind of passage in Corinthians and that passage in, um, in Ephesians is, as slaves, how are we to get through this, you know, wherever God has placed us, by honouring God. We're to do it with a submittive attitude, in godliness, not with a rebellious attitude, not with a hateful attitude. Just do the work. Do it well. Do it unto the Lord. Does that make cruel treatment okay? Of course not. You don't throw out the rest of the Bible just to read one verse. When he writes to the Corinthians um, I think he's saying, wherever your state, glorify God there. You, you, we look back at Joseph in Egypt when his brothers sold him into slavery. And Joseph says, You, my brothers, meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So honor God wherever you're at, even if it's a raw deal. We don't have to endorse a raw deal but we want to be christ-like when we're in the middle of that raw deal and what about masters what are they to do do the same and all the masters in the church would have gone sorry what putting me in the same category as the slave he says stop threatening and why because he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Paul comes back to that theme of Ephesians of oneness, whether they're where slave, free, Jew, Gentile, male, female, there's oneness in the gospel. And that's really wonderful as a slave. You're not seen differently because of your station in life. Whether you're a mistreated slave at the bottom of society or a slave owner at the top. That would be wonderful news if you're a slave. So, this is not the only passage in the New Testament that speaks of slavery. Paul just didn't mess up here. And, you know, there's lots of, there's a different story elsewhere in the New Testament. He's very consistent through Colossians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, um, 1 Peter. Paul doesn't outright abolish slavery in the church. It tacitly tolerates it. But does the New Testament teach the legitimacy of slavery in the lives of Christians? I would say no. Let's just do a quick flyover of what the New Testament does say about human relationships, whether that's master-slave or not. Firstly, in Paul's letter to Timothy Paul says kidnapping or man-stealing or enslaving is condemned. And that in and of itself, that one statement, pretty much makes most slavery impossible. In James, it says all human beings are created in the likeness of God. Jesus says Christians are to do to others what we would wish they would do to us, the golden rule. Christians are to love our neighbours as we love ourselves. um, Paul writes in Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbour. Paul in Galatians says there is neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. In Colossians, in the church, each believer is a new person. There's no slave or free. And again in Colossians, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Despite all that, nowhere does it say there are no more master-slave relations in the church. Paul seems to leave this kind of shell of slavery, but the individuals within that are so transformed that even though we might use the words master-slave, it's not slavery. So, what are we to do with all that? Um, Kat read um, earlier Jesus' first sermon. He stood up in a little synagogue and he read from Isaiah 61. And the passage talks about pro- proclaiming good news. It's about the good news that Jesus brings into the world frees people, that brings sight to the blind, that frees the captives, that releases people from oppression. And so he's talking about his future kingdom, when he'll bring justice. The kingdom is yet to come, but there's a bit of a twist in that this kingdom is being glimpsed now in the person of Jesus and wherever his disciples go and live out that vision. So even though the New Testament doesn't condemn slavery, by the the 50s AD, um, Apostle Paul is saying these things would kind of explode. Slavery. By the second century, There's a text called The Shepherd of Hermas, And in it, it talks about any wealthy Christians should use their money to purchase slaves who are being mistreated. They didn't end slavery, but they were certainly trying to overturn it, however they could. By the 5th century, there's a letter from St Augustine that talks about churches regularly freeing slaves, not just Christian slaves, just slaves, from slave traders that were coming across from North Africa. It was so regular a ministry that it was bankrupting the church. So even though we don't see the words in the New Testament, thou shalt not keep slaves, it says everything but... So let's be about God's kingdom. Let's use our freedom to serve and submit to earthly authorities. Let's share the good news with our friends that each of us can be set free from the slavery of sin. And let's be about making God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.